0: So if you'd come with me to John chapter 12, we're going to pick up uh, John's narrative in verse 12 and follow it all the way through to uh, uh, verse uh, 26 this morning. Uh, and so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We just pray, Lord, that uh, uh, you'd continue to work in our hearts as you've begun to do uh during Pastor Chris's worship set. And Lord, it is true, Lord, that that you are powerful and you desire to uh, work in our hearts, uh, the cry of our heart, the pleas that we have and in the midst of life, Lord, you desire to show yourself strong in the midst of those times, Lord. And so, Lord, we pray, Lord, as we come to your word this morning uh, Lord, that you would speak uh, to all of our hearts, Lord, I pray, in, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we come to John chapter 12, verse 12. If you have a, a King James or an ESV, uh, there's an uninspired uh, note above the text that says uh, the triumphal entry. I'm not sure how appropriate that uh, footnote is. Uh, it's anything but triumphal uh, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, and so I hope that, you know, what you might have heard year after year at Palm Sunday, that you could just put that aside for a minute and, uh, and just really kind of let the text speak to you uh, this morning. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, Jesus has been, is traveling uh, to Jerusalem, uh, and he's, he's traveling uh, with, a, with a crowd of disciples. And before he comes to uh, Jerusalem, we can harmonize the go- gospel accounts by looking at Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. And it, it really just kind of set the uh, tone, in a sense, or it sets the heart of Jesus for the daughter of Zion, which is a personification of Jerusalem uh, as a city. It's personifying it as a daughter uh, and it's speaking of Jerusalem. But the Luke 19 account really sets the journey in that Jesus comes up and he looks over Jerusalem and instead of waving a mighty um, military banner, Jesus does what over the city? Weeps over Jerusalem because he sees the destruction that's going to come to the city in AD 70 by the Romans. And knowing that, knowing that 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 is part of Jesus' heart as as he's approaching Jerusalem kind of opens the text, at least for me a little bit, in that that the expectations that I might bring to the text or, or the expectations about how God should work, sometimes are very different from the reality of his working in our lives. And sometimes it's when we set aside all the Sunday school things, the, you know, the triumphal entry and all of that, we begin to get the, at the heart of God. And the heart of God in this text is that he has come to save. That's what Hosanna. Hosanna means. It's an expression in Hebrew, Lord save us. So it is the Lord's heart to save, yet the expectations of how that's going to happen when we look at the first part of the text is one thing. When we look at the second part of our text, 20 through 26, we find the reality. And so. It's that way in all of our lives, especially um, if we have grown up, let's say, in a religious family or, or we, we grew up in a, maybe a, a, a church that didn't call for a gospel conversion, didn't call for being born again, didn't call for having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we, we come to the church life or we come to the Gospels thinking, oh, this is the way you want to work. This is my expectation for you, Lord. And oftentimes, isn't it different? You know, you might think, oh, I know how the Lord's going to work in this situation. And then, then all of a sudden, he's dealing with some deeper issue of the heart over and over again. And I think that's kind of the, the contrast between verse 12 and 19, and then in verse 20 through 26, you have that contrast. You have, this is how I thought you would work, Lord, but, but this is how you really work. I thought you would come as a mighty warrior, but now you're fulfilling, what is it? Zechariah 9.9. I thought you would be this deliverer, but you have come to deliver, but you've come to deliver in a different way. And that's really the kind of faith journey that we're on is, is, to, is to lay aside our, our expectations and say, Lord, I want you to transform my heart. I, I want to become more like Jesus. And, and would you do that in my life, Lord, even if it doesn't match up to my expectations? And life is like that. Like I, I never expected to be where, where I am right now in, in my life, but God is good and he has brought joy and he has brought purpose. Um, and so come to the text. Maybe you'll see that and maybe that would change your life this morning. Maybe, maybe something would happen where you'd let go Of your expectations and say, God, do what you really want to do in my heart and my life. We come to verse 12 of chapter 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This large crowd came from all over the world, they were called pilgrims, and they were coming to celebrate the Passover. What's really fascinating in the pilgrims and, and is, provides insight into the application of our text is that when we look at verse 20 and 21 of the text, we know that embedded in those pilgrims was not only true Jewish believers, but embedded in that great throng of pilgrims were people that were not Jewish. They, they were not circumcised. They were Gentiles, and they were coming along with the great crowd out of our heart to seek and to find the one true God. And they had expectations in their heart. Now, we know that God had prepared a place for them to worship, even though they weren't Jewish, right, in the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles. And so God had prepared a place for people from all over the world that may not be part, may not be Jewish to come in to worship him. Verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so what happened in their heart is what happens in my heart and your heart. We get stirred like worship was stirring this morning. We get stirred in our heart and we say, oh, this this is what God's going to do. And and that was in their heart. They were like, oh, here he comes. And we know why they, they were there. They were there for the Passover. There were two other groups of people there too. There were those following Jesus' disciples. Uh, and the, a, a great number of them were there because of Lazarus. You know, they saw the miracle. And they were hanging with Jesus. And, and we know that. In a few short moments, the same people that were going to lay down branches and cry out, Psalm 118, 25, 26, they were going to say, crucify him. But back to the text, the next day, the large crowd, they had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, and they chanted, as was their practice out of Psalm 118, and they were chanting and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, what? The king of Israel. And so they were crying out, Lord, save us! And their expectation was, for what? A mighty mighty deliverer to set them free politically and economically from Rome. And their expectations you know, will be fulfilled, and one day, as we look at the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes, as a mighty warrior on a white horse, they'll be fulfilled one day, as He establishes His millennial rule on earth. But this expectation, Jesus says, "No, I have come to save you, but not according to your expectation." So He takes what comes in the next verse with me. You've, you've. Literally, many of you have heard the, the Palm Sunday teaching, you know, tens of times. Uh, come to verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written out of Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And verse 16 reflects. It gives a good picture of you and I a lot of times. His disciples, they were clueless. And they didn't understand these things until after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it teaches us that that, uh, expectations, the lack of understanding, that God will resolve those things in his time in your life. And if you're sitting here this morning even saying, I don't understand all these things, That's okay. It's okay to be in process. It's okay to be in a place where we are growing. It's okay to be in a place to say, I don't understand all these things because the disciples were that way. Matter of fact, when we look at Acts chapter 1, even after the resurrection of Jesus and his appearance, what did the disciples ask Jesus in Acts chapter 1? They say, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Would Would you now do what we wanted you to do in verse 13. And so there's always this tension in the life of believers. I expect you to do this, but you do this. And what we'll find out, I'll give you the end of this, the teaching, what we find out is God is more interested in the transformation of the heart according to his means, his means, rather than our desires. And that's, That's the journey to maturity. Oh, back to the text. I'm getting towards the end of the teaching already. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. His disciples, verse 16, his disciples, they didn't understand. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with, with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. <laughs> and the religious leaders, they spazzed out. They, they absolutely lost it. They said, oh, all the world, talk about hyperbole. <laughs> all the world is going after him. What are we to do? You know? And so you see the three groups of people there. You see the you see the bumbling disciples. You see the pilgrims. And you see the uh, exasperated religious leaders. Well, in this crowd, there are some God-fearers. In this crowd of pilgrims that's participating in this, there's some Greeks. And they figure out a couple of the guys, because their name's are Greek, that they're going to ask them, look, We've come for the real thing, and we want to meet this Jesus. Come to the text. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and we've mentioned that there's a place for them to worship, right, in the court of the Gentiles. It says, now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, an area that was dominated by Gentiles. And he asked him, asked him a simple question, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. Now this is probably the most remarkable pivot that there is in John. And it opens up Jesus answering the prayer or the chant, Lord, save us, but not according to the expectations of the people. It opens up the door to understand, like, what is the purpose of Jesus in my life, your life? How does he want to work in our life? Because up until this point in time in the gospel, I give you the references in the notes, but one of them is in chapter two. It's at the feast of it's at the wedding. And they ran out of what? They ran out of wine and 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 Mary is goes to her son and says, fix it. And Jesus says, Oh. My time has not come. And so consistently through the gospel of John, Jesus is saying, John chapter 7, John chapter 8, he's saying, my time has not come. But in this case, he says, my time has come. Why does he say that? Because he wants to answer the chant, Lord, save us. And he wants to minister to the hearts of the people. But in the ways that his father has prepared out of his justice. Because God has to deal with sin in a just way. And so Jesus says to them this. And Jesus answered to them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. To be glorified. And we know that that phrase, for the Son of Man to be glorified, does not have to, does really, has nothing to do with, um, say, power or superiority in the sense that we would define it by. But glory to the Son as everything to do about his humility of heart to complete the Father's plan, which is to go to the cross, to give up his life so that we can exchange a life we can't save for a life we can't lose. That's secured by the blood and if you've been around the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ to satisfy the righteous judgment of God. And what Jesus tells us is this, this paradox that if we want to live, we must what? We must die. If we want to transform life, if we want joy, if we, want a, if we want a sense of the abundant life now and carrying it into eternity, the paradox for a Christian is that we die and we receive everything. We go to the cross voluntarily. We give up our life so that Christ can rule and reign in our life. And when we do that, we are set free from the power of sin and power of death because the one that has defeated sin and death rules and reigns in our heart, in our life. And that's why Paul can say, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loves me and gave up his life for me on the cross. And because he lives, we live. And that is the great paradox and how Jesus answers the Greeks, not according to their expectations. The text says it better than I could. Come, it, Jesus used the this emphatic language be like me saying, hey, listen up. Jesus says in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, here's the paradox, whoever loves his life Whoever tries to save his life, we could say that. Whoever loves his life, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for when? For how long? For eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And that is the Christian message. That's the reason why that cross is the symbol of Christianity, is that Christ has come. He has given up his life, that those that would put their faith and trust in him need not die, but have their sins forgiven and have eternal life. Because when the Father looks at Eddie Conway, he sees who I am in Christ and not the old man or the edemic nature. He sees one that has been cleansed and forgiven and sinless, not because of works or my own righteousness, but because of him who loved me and gave his life for me. And see, that's the road to eternal life. And that's the road from freedom from sin. But I'll, I'll, I'll be transparent. What I try to do is I try to manage my sin. Try to make it, oh, you know, just hold on to that baby, you know. I'm not gonna bring it to the cross. Come with me to Romans chapter six. Paul writes this in Romans chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answers. says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him By baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. And six is the key. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. And so the expectation of the pilgrims was, Lord, save us by being a mighty political, economic warrior to deliver us. And God, Jesus says, I'll save you. Follow me to the cross. Voluntarily give up your life. And when you do that, my atonement, my sacrifice, my substitutionary work will satisfy the justice of God and your sins will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. See, when we give our heart to Jesus, we, we, when we... When we give our heart to Jesus, we open the door of our heart for him to be the Lord of our heart. Tozer gets at it this way. He writes, in every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. Anybody remember those old Chick tracks? You know, those yellow ones, the scary little things from the 70s. And in all of our hearts there's a there's a throne room. And when we voluntarily confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and accept his work, he comes and sits on the throne of our heart. Toza writes, perhaps this is at the bottom. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne, and the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross and remains on the throne, perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of our mansoul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. There's a free PDF of that book that's part of the notes. And so we come to the end of our talk today, and it's all about, like, expectations. Like, how do we expect the Lord to work in our life? The pilgrims, they wanted a mighty deliverer. And their prayer was the right one, Lord, save us. And Jesus came and he answered that prayer. He says, I will save you because I'll satisfy the righteous demands of a just and holy God by paying the penalty for your sin. And if you're here this morning or you're listening and you've not had that In other words, like on the throne of your heart, you're still the ruler, you're still still king, and you're wondering why this Christian stuff doesn't work out. It's because the Lord wants to be the Lord of your heart and your life, and that requires a surrender. Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, I give you my life. Lord, come and be the Lord of my life. And when you do that, He forgives all your sins. He sets you free, brings joy to your life, brings you peace in the midst of the most craziest things that can happen this side of heaven. And that's the transaction. Maybe not what you've expected, but it's what secures eternal life, forgiveness of sins, when we let Christ rule in our hearts and our lives. That message, the cross, and the power of the cross, it's what changed the whole known world. When all departed, there was only a few left. Jesus came and appeared to the disciples and said, keep on preaching the gospel to the whole world. And the disciples did that. And it was the power of, of that cross that changed people's lives and changed the whole world? Will you let it change your life today? That's the question. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table this morning as we close. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, you've given us a path to eternal life. And that path goes to the cross of Christ that when we give up our life, when we voluntarily go to the cross, we experience your grace, your forgiveness of sin, your new life. And so we pray for that, Lord. Lord, our hearts, if we've never been We've never given our heart to Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that prayer this morning. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Lord, I willingly go to the cross. Lord, I let you, out of your grace, pay for the sins that I've committed so that I could receive your forgiveness and so that I could be clean and have right standing Be clean before God. Lord, I give you my heart today. Come and forgive me of my sins so that I could be clean, whole, so that I could know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. If you prayed that prayer at home or here, don't leave here without telling someone about that. If you're at home, Tell someone that's in your home or give me a call. But don't let today's day end without letting someone know that you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior.